Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Leanna Scacchetti. And I'm Leah Harding. The Gainesville City Commission held a long meeting Wednesday as part of a mediated settlement with a group of Gainesville citizens who opposed the city's biomass plant. Gainesville Citizens Care filed a lawsuit to declare the 30-year contract between Gainesville Regional Utilities and the firm American Renewables, the company building the biomass plant null and void. American Renewables did not return phone calls for comment. Of particular concern to Gainesville citizens, care were the charges the commission made from the initial proposal that commissioners accepted in 2008 with their final contract approved in 2009, changes that were not discussed publicly before the commission approved them. These changes included an increase in cost of rates to $130 per megawatt hour and the removal of a clause allowing the city to back out of the deal given a change in market conditions. Nathan Scop was a member of the State Public Service Commission at the time GRU filed with them to review the plant. He gives he lives in Gainesville and is an outspoken opponent of the plant. He says that while the commission's heart is in the right place, the deals and negotiations they have made are not fiscally responsible and have a sh- have shown a lack of regard for customers' interest. They also failed to include the termination for convenience clause that would have given us the ability, had market conditions changed, to exit this contract for less than 1% of the contract value. And that that is why it is inexcusable for Bob Hunzinger not to have included that important provision in that contract. And, and again, the only reason why he gave in his deposition was that the Gainesville and the City Commission were committed to this project. Well, last night demonstrated the people of Gainesville are not committed to this project. They had no knowledge of the magnitude of this project. So, uh, again, it, it was an ideology driven by the former mayor, driven by a city commission, and it's sealed to be green. You know, they, they signed up the, to this Kyoto Protocol, and, you know, that's aspirational. It's all well and good, but it's not binding upon GRU. And the problem here is that the strategic generation planning process of GRU has been proven over the last hundred years was hijacked by a city commission that substituted their judgment for the judgment of professionals. And we were stuck with a fiscally irresponsible contract Scop says the current situation that GRU has found itself in, pegged between either buying the biomass plant or allowing a company other than American Renewables to have a controlling share of the plant, represents the very issue a backout clause would have prevented. It also represents the issue raised in the Public Service Commission's order regarding the plant and their risk mitigation assessment. Now, he says, the city commission has charged ahead with a deal that has squandered what he described as one of Gainesville's best resources. Over its history, it's provided the revenue transfer, which enhances our quality of life, which funds the parks, um, keeps our taxes low. But with the grant contract, the Gainesville City Commission gave away the goose that laid the golden egg. They ceded our generation to an out-of-state company. It's the greatest wealth transfer that the city of Gainesville has ever known. And now, because of that mistake, and because of this fiscally irresponsible contract, the city commission is forced to cede control of our utility and its future to Wall Street investment bankers. And that's not, uh, you know, you're pledging and encumbering your assets, and either one or two things are happening. Rates are going to go sky high because all each 
incremental agreement has a pledge that the city commission will raise rates to cover the debt that they've issued. And if they don't, it will be foreclosed upon. So, um, you know, they've, they've basically leveraged our utility to the hilt. We've incurred a um, substantial amount of debt, growing over $1 billion on our utility over the past decade. And there's no reason for this. The reason for this is that the city commission is in over their head. They don't have financial acumen that you know, Commissioner Chase does. Um, and they don't listen to the people that try to tell them, you can't do this. They just find a way to refinance everything. That's their solution to everything. It's just like the federal government. We're going to refinance, we're going to refinance, we're going to refinance. All you do is grow debt when you do that. And you can only do that for so long, and then it becomes un untenable. And that's why they're not able to do this prepayment scheme because of the pending litigation and the growing debt. No one wants to take that risk. As to the next steps the commission should take regarding the contract, Scop advises buying up the construction loans American Renewables took out. He doubts the commission will actually follow through with the action. In other news, Gov Governor Scott is pushing to eliminate manufacturing equipment tax to help create more jobs. A $1 billion surplus in state's budget is supposed to offset that loss in revenue. Karen McCann is the president of the Alachua County Education Association. I spoke with her about how she thinks that $1 billion in surplus is what Scott promised give, to give back to education. McCann says she realized the job market is give and take, but thinks education needs to be a priority when state officials are deciding where to spend their money. So in regards to Governor Scott's recent proposal to eliminate manufacturing equipment tax, what tie would you say that has to education and the budget cuts that have happened? In well, we've had a lot of budget cuts to education. Uh, he's promised to give $1 billion back this year, but the year before that he cut $1.3 billion. And the billion that he's giving back, uh, about 25% of that is going to go to corporate vouchers. So it's really not going to public K-12 through schools. So what I see in this whole process is really more not job growth, but it's, um, it's job shift. <laughs> it's, it's shifting. Um, you know, when you privatize or when you, you know, take away from education and teachers and support personnel get cut jobs and they, you know, try to find a job somewhere else, it's more or less a shifting of jobs. It's not really job growth. Well, you said um, that Governor Scott promised um, education in Florida a billion dollars. Is that what you said? Yeah, this year, yeah. Is it a double promise? Is that how, like, the education realm is seeing this, that he's promised us a billion, yet that's what he's saying he's going to use to cover all of these tax deficits? I don't, I don't know what his plan is right now for the tax deficits. I know that Florida has huge loopholes. I mean, there's no tax on yachts, um, skyboxes, Internet sales tax. There's a lot of ways for us to generate tax. But what has been happening is it seems like the people that um, are struggling in the middle class um, are not benefiting from many of it. The, the people that seem to be benefiting, at, some at the most, are the people who really don't need the tax cuts. Education is at the core of building a strong workforce throughout the country and definitely throughout Florida. So it's difficult for me to understand how we can build a strong workforce when we're taking money out of the kids, you know, uh, and that's who it affects the most. Um, when you cut services in a school, whether it's teachers or at bus drivers or cafeteria workers, when those directly relate to the kids that we service and those parents. So 
when those job cuts occur, and there's been many of them. Right. You said that the educational system in Florida brings in jobs, which is true with teachers, faculty, staff. Um, And I have a quote here from Governor Scott saying, every time we help manufacturing in our state, we give more jobs to Florida families. So do you feel like education might be competing against these other jobs in manufacturing that Scott is trying to develop? You know, it's education is one part of the budget it's always been one of the largest parts of the budget and it competes with everything when you have a a difficult uh, economy um, and you take money from education and you take money from state workers who are primarily middle-class workers it impacts everything like manufacturing i mean it's to have tax cuts in manufacturing to bring in more companies for manufacturing is fine, but who's going to buy those goods? If, if those people are getting the tax cuts and, and not the people who are buying those goods and services, then I'm not really sure how that relates. It doesn't make this a very attractive state for an educator to want to come to or stay in. And I'm seeing that even here in Alachua County, that we have people leaving and going to other states. Most amount of consumers occur in the class of people that seem to be hurting the most. And so when those persons are, you know, getting taxed, you know, losing jobs, essentially, um, they're not being able to be out there and, and be the kind of consumers that really make an economy grow. And I'm also concerned about the, the you know, quality of jobs that are there. I mean, what kind of jobs are they? Are they minimum wage jobs? Um, you know, what person making a minimum wage in today's economy can survive? That was president of the Alachua County Education Association, Karen McCann. Almost all of the states have adopted Common Core standards for public schools in English, language arts, and math. The standards set clear expectations for student achievement at each grade level. They also require students to show they understand what they've learned. The goal is to tackle learning problems early on, so more students graduate ready for college or a career. State impact reporters Gina Jordan and Martha Dalton report on Common Core practices among the states. The story was about a gingerbread man getting loose in the school. These kindergartners in Tallahassee are learning to read using the new Common Core standards. The students have to show they understand what they're reading. The gingerbread man got stuck on the ball, and this is when he broke his toe. Their teacher, Katherine Kenton, says comprehension is the primary focus. And so I added in a gingerbread theme to make it fun for this week and and just looked at the standards and designing my lessons and seeing what I needed to focus on. Florida is phasing in Common Core over four years. This is the second year. And I just find that the kids are learning a lot more because I think I'm paying a lot more attention to the details when I look at the standards. Gilchrist Elementary School principal David Soles says one of the ideas behind Common Core is that students should be learning at the same pace from state to state. If you move from Georgia to Florida, they're learning the same things in second grade that you'd be learning there. And to determine how well kids are learning around the country, Federal Race to the Top grants are being used to design two kinds of Common Core testing. Florida is developing tests to measure how well students can read complex writing, complete research projects, and work with digital media. Those tests will be used in 21 other states, plus the District of Columbia. Right now, the FCAT is given once a year. The new test will be given throughout the year. For State Impact Florida, I'm Gina Jordan in Tallahassee.
I'm Martha Dalton in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia is beginning to use the same Common Core standards that Florida first started phasing in last year. Students in Stormy Johnson's third grade math class at the Marietta Center for Advanced Academics are tackling word problems. What else does the problem give us? We know 28 and all. Prana. Prenna goes on to solve the problem, then Sean raises his hand. I disagree because... The That's what students in Common Core states are learning to do, explain their reasoning. And Mrs. Johnson says that means they have to do more than simple calculations. I need you to show me you understand the procedures with a picture and sentences. So that's been the tricky part for, for the kids. As the students break into groups to continue working on problems, Swarat Kolkarni explains how he used a diagram to solve a problem. I have three boxes and there's 24 pencils. 24 divided by 3 is 8, like so. So my answer is eight pencils are in each box. Students aren't the only ones working harder. Teachers are too. The Common Core is a set of standards, not a full curriculum. That means teachers like Stormy Johnson have to come up with lessons to teach the concepts. If teachers are really doing a good job teaching it. They're spending lots and lots of time on just figuring out what is the best way to teach this skill. And since current textbooks weren't written with the Common Core in mind, teachers are basically on their own. Both Georgia and Florida are scheduled to start using the new test within two years. For State Impact Florida, I'm Martha Dalton in Atlanta. The tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut that left more than 20 students and teachers dead has sparked conversation around the country about public access to firearms. Florida Public Radio's Regan McCarthy reports that same conversation is taking place in Florida as state and local leaders debate the best way to protect the Second Amendment rights of their citizens while making sure everyone is as safe as possible. What's to blame for the Connecticut tragedy and how can officials prevent something like that from happening in Florida? That depends on who you ask. Some are pointing to the need for more school funding that could help pay for more school security. Others say more mental health services could help to protect against such events. And others are arguing for either more or fewer guns on the streets. Let's look at all the theaters. There was like 20 theaters available to this theater shooting out in Colorado. And uh, what happened? They went to the one theater that was a gun-free zone. And they knew that. That was advertised as that. So, you know, we trying to think that we're more protected that way, aren't we? That's State Representative Dennis Baxley, a Republican from Ocala. He sponsored Florida's so-called stand-your-ground legislation, a law that doesn't require a person under attack to retreat before using deadly force, and which received recent media attention in connection with the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old Florida teen killed by self-appointed Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman. Baxley's on the more guns side of the argument, or at least he says he doesn't like the idea of creating what he calls no-gun zones. Making gun-free zones... While well-intentioned desire to keep everyone safe, we have unintentionally, inadvertently made them a target. Baxley was part of a panel discussion on the topic hosted by the Orlando Sentinel and Fox 35 News. He says places like college campuses, schools, and government buildings where guns are not allowed are typically the target for mass shootings, such as the one in Connecticut. And Baxley says he thinks putting more restrictions on getting guns won't stop criminals. But Senator Darren Soto, a Democrat from Orlando, disagrees. 
I support uh, having everyone have to take a background check before they buy a firearm. And I've heard two arguments against that here. One is that we don't have the mechanism. Well, we can create the mechanism, obviously. And two is that it won't be perfect enforcement. Soder says the possibility that perfect enforcement might not be possible isn't a good enough reason to shy away from regulations like requiring background checks. The panel also discussed issues like improving safety in schools, earmarking more funding for mental health care services, and training teachers to spot students who might need special mental health care. The question of how to avoid tragedies like the one in Connecticut is expected to be a major topic for the coming legislative session. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. Florida's environment, particularly the Everglades, could be a major topic of discussion in Congress this year. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, several Florida congressmen are partnering on bipartisan proposals aimed at Everglades restoration. Democrat who represents South Florida's House District 18 says he's hoping to play a role in helping the environment during his time in Washington. It's return on investment and it's something that I'm going to focus on. And I've already spoken to a couple of Republicans about, one of which is Tom Rooney, fellow Florida colleague. And we're coming up with a couple of ideas to help out our districts and help out the Everglades. In recent years, Congressman Tom Rooney has tried and failed to introduce legislation that would ban the import of specific snake breeds like pythons, which are damaging the Everglades. Another bipartisan pair, Congressman Elsie Hastings, a Democrat, and Mario Diaz-Balart, a Republican, recently reintroduced the Congressional Everglades Caucus to educate members on the importance of Everglades-related issues. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. When Kelly Benham and Tom French's daughter was born at 23 weeks, doctors told them the situation was grim. Half the babies born this early do not survive. Every body part is underdeveloped at this age and many face disabilities. The couple was told that they would have to make a very tough choice, allow their baby to die or fight for her survival. They chose to fight. Here's part two of the two-part story on the Benham's choice. About a weekend, <clears throat> she had a perforation in her intestines, and they, they say they call it a perf. The perfs were really the first of many really difficult setbacks. She had a blood clot in her heart, which if it had dislodged from the wall of her heart, could have easily killed her in a few seconds. She had a condition called chylothorax, where there's a leak in her uh, in her lymphatic system, and so her body was filling with fluid, and she swelled up in a really horrible way and couldn't even open her eyes at that point. She had a period where she was stopping breathing six, seven, eight times a day and sometimes turning blue uh, while they tried to resuscitate her. It sounds like every day of those six months you were questioning, you didn't know if she would live or not. We really didn't know, and I... I kept trying to ask. You know, I asked. I asked a hundred different ways. I I said, you know, is is my kid going to be okay? Is she going to be normal? Is she going to go to kindergarten? Um, and they they would never answer. You, you had this idea in your head of of who your daughter was and who she was going to be, and, and you had to, you know, face the possibility that that might never be the case. Well, even if she never got out, I wanted her to. I wanted her to have a good day. And know what that felt like and know what it felt like to be loved. And, you know, we we could tell from the readings on the monitors things that 
made her happy. And, you know, maybe happy is not the medical term, but she would, she would breathe better and do better when we played music for her. So we, so we kept playing music. She, she liked it. She seemed to like it when we read her stories. So we kept reading them. She, she noticed it, whether we were there or not there. And that was all the reason in the world to give her a chance and to go forward. Um, and one day they, they told us to buy a car seat. And that was, that was when we knew that they, they were being optimistic enough to start to talk about the possibility of her coming home. Tell us what happened. She lived. Um, our daughter, Juniper, is 20 months old. She's really more like a 16-month-old because then she came four months early. But she's been, it's been 20 months since she was born. And she is running. She's talking. She's a very, very happy little girl. Juniper's obviously very young right now still. And she's got a whole life ahead of her. At this point, is she in the clear? Is there any way to know that? You know, I've inherited the hospital's superstition, so I'm not, I'll never say she's in the clear. I'm, um, you never know what life is going to throw at you, and she's doing great. For another couple who finds himself in your situation, you know, a couple who has to consider the same ethical decisions, what would you tell them? If I were in the situation again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to go for it again. Um, the reason that doctors um, leave some of these decisions to parents is because the questions are so unanswerable. The parents have to live with the, whatever decision is made and however it goes in a way the doctors do not, and the doctors recognize that. I feel like the love that surrounded her in that hospital made a difference that um, isn't always apparent in studies and statistics. I think being there was really important. Trying to paint a picture for her of the world that waited for her, trying to give her a sense of joy and possibility inside a plastic box. A really nice plastic box. A really expensive, (laughs) really pimped out plastic box. (laughs) Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Tom, so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you. Yesterday, we began the story of Fabian John, a dancer who lost her leg in the earthquake that devastated Haiti three years ago this month. A prosthetic technician from Boston promised to help Fabian dance again. But he didn't stop there. He wanted to help her put the rest of her life back together, too. And the second part of a series from Jacob Kushner from member station WLRN tells us how difficult his task would become. A few months after the earthquake, Dennis Acton brought Fabian to the United States to be fitted for a prosthetic leg for the second time, one that would be better for dancing. During that trip, she danced again for the first time. She was featured on MSNBC, and videos of her dancing in a New York nightclub circulated on YouTube. People just wanted her to succeed because that was a symbol that Haiti could climb back from this terrible disaster. But Fabian admits it wasn't like it used to be when she had her real leg. I tried to dance with this. It's not a natural leg, but I was able to adapt, and I danced. It's February 2012. Fabian's trip to the United States, the dancing in the nightclub, that was two years ago. Now she spends her days sitting at her kitchen table in her small, dark, concrete block house in Port-au-Prince. Fabian opens the metal cover to a cistern to fetch water. She has to bathe her mother, who had a stroke and rarely moves from a mattress on the floor. 
I don't go out. This is the house where I stay. I get up, I bathe my mom. If I have money, I go to the market near here to buy food. If we have electricity, I watch TV or listen to the radio. After Fabian returned to Haiti, the New York Times published an article describing a tug-of-war between Dennis and a group of American doctors. They wanted to bring Fabian back to the U.S. for a corrective surgery on her stump. Dennis advised against it. He thought a second surgery was unnecessarily risky. Fabian decided she didn't want the surgery. But Dennis says the article hurt his reputation. After that, he says, the foundation he had set up to help Haitian amputees stopped getting donations. Fabian thumbs through text messages on her cell phone. Hi, Fabian. I have good news. A big donation is coming this week. Every few months, Dennis would send Fabian a text to tell her he was wiring money, 50 bucks here or there. He'd wish her a happy birthday or tell her that a foreign journalist would be contacting her soon for an interview. The messages stopped over a year ago. Fabian remembers all the things Dennis had hoped to do to help her recover. She thinks of them as promises he didn't make good on. He said he would buy me a house because he wants me to live well. He said I would go to the U.S. where I could go to a dance school. He said that with the donations he was getting, he would give me money to start a business. But Dennis says those weren't promises at all. I'm an idea guy. I, I've always been the guy who thinks things up. I like to include people in brainstorming. I think it empowers them to think about what we could do. And I sat around for, for hours and hours during these trips talking about what we could do. We talked about how Fabian could, could uh, open a dance school. We talked about trips that we could make. Dennis had hoped Fabian would become a symbol of Haiti's recovery. But Fabian herself, like much of her country, is far from recovered. On one of my visits with Fabian, I ask her if she would dance for me, but she refuses. I won't dance. I won't dance. I'm discouraged. I won't dance. I tell her that I think if people hear that she's not dancing, they might think it's her fault for not trying hard enough, for not continuing with rehearsals. Well, let them think that. Let them think that. It's been a year since Dennis last contacted Fabian, but he hasn't forgotten about her. He'd heard her prosthesis was cracking. So, last fall, he secretly wired money to a Haitian man to fix it. I'm Jacob Kushner. And on this update, just a few days ago, we got word that Fabian's mother died on December 28th. Tune in tomorrow for the final part of the series. The PGA Tour's Rory McIlroy earned more than $8 million this year in 16 events. Coupled with a large amount of money and an even larger fan base, golf has established itself as a world sport. Some say may argue that a golf course is only as good as the golfers who play on it. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM Zach Blobner reports who is really behind the success of a golf course. for the first time in more than two years. Another Sunday on the course for Tiger Woods and many of the sport's best ends in shouts and cheers. Less than 12 hours after the final scorecard is filled out, the maintenance crew will be wide awake and to work prepping the greens and perfecting the tee boxes. Every PGA event you've ever seen was made possible by the unsung heroes of the grounds crew, who put in long hours early in the morning every day grooming their respective courses. Whether you're talking about somewhere as nationally known as Augusta or something more locally known like Mar- 
Mark Bostick in Gainesville. Much of the maintenance is the same. Bostick Golf Course Assistant Superintendent Ian Ring says the reality of it is putting an event together doesn't happen overnight. Well, a lot of times on TV, you know, what what you'll see at a golf course is the culmination of months of preparation for those one or two days. And uh, here on a daily basis, you know, things aren't always as pristine. You know, we just have to um, we have to manage things as best we can on a budget, all right. And um, and then we try to peak the golf course um, for specific times of year, namely whenever we have big tournaments. Ring says even when the grounds crew isn't prepping for an event, there's still plenty of work to go around on a day-to-day basis. On the daily basis, we mow greens every single morning. Um, we change the whole location of the pin or the flag stick uh, about every other day. We mow fairways and uh, tees every other day, so three times a week for that stuff. Um, uh, you know, we rake bunkers. We do any uh, tree trimming that needs to be done, fertilization, uh, and that's our basic day. According to Ring, about 200,000 gallons of water are used per day to maintain the greens with large sprinkler heads located throughout the course. The sprinklers themselves run from about 3 to 10 minutes every time they pop up. The amount of rain also highly affects how much H2O is used at Bostick during the week. Aside from water, grounds workers deal with a lot of sand in various bunkers as well. I think we have uh, somewhere in between 100 and 150 um, uh, bunkers or sand traps. Uh, you know, typically those want to have four inches of sand, uh, you know, per per bunker. Um, uh, we also use sand to top dress greens with and also to fill in divots. Uh, so I really can't tell you exactly how much sand we have, uh, but, yeah, it is mined somewhere else, and then we'll buy it from a company who brings it in. And so we, we use a quite a bit of sand. A typical round of 18 at Bostick plus cart fees cost the average person about $40 during the week and 50 on weekends. The course also hosts a number of charity events and celebrity tournaments in the span of a year that rake in quite a bit of money. Ring says Bostick is fortunate to have a big enough budget to keep everything up to par. I would say we spend somewhere between six and $700,000 per year just on the maintenance aspect of the golf course. Usually a big, huge portion of your budget is going to be labor and salary. Okay, and then beyond that is going to be your uh, material costs. And and budgets on golf course can range anywhere from $200,000 a year to $2 million a year, depending on where you are. So, I mean, that's all relative. Golf enthusiast Max Mattern has enjoyed hitting the links since he was a young boy in New York. Although courses are a bit different down south, his love of the game isn't. Mattern says it's easy to forget about the rest of the world while golfing. When you look around, you just see the trees, you just see the green and the sky and then the course that's all you see you don't see the cars you might hear the cars going by but you don't see the cars you don't see the roads even some houses you won't see just because of the trees so it definitely helps because it makes you feel like you're in this other world the amount of work it takes to keep a golf course in top shape rarely goes noticed by those roaming the fairways. However, that doesn't mean the appearance isn't appreciated. Madron says there's a different feel on Bostick because of the scenery. It's like you're in a whole nother world when you're playing. Um, you're not in the real world. Um, it's just how well kept the course is, how well kept compared to not everything else. Um, but it just feels like you're you're able to escape. It's like an escape for me. The next time you see Tiger Woods fist pumping after a long putt or Bubba Watson driving the ball 300 plus yards, 
Don't forget about the men and women behind the scenes that made it all possible. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Zach Blobner. The Hippodrome Theater is bringing in the new year with a Tony Award-winning production titled Venus and Fur that critics describe as sexy, smart, and electrifying. The play has been hailed as the most acclaimed Broadway play of the season and was named year's best play by the New York Times, USA Today, and Entertainment Weekly, among others. The show stars University of Florida theater professor Tim Altmeyer as Thomas, a demanding stage director in an emotionally charged audition with Vanda, played by Altmeyer's former student, Lauren Nordvig. I spoke with Tim Altmeyer, who describes his role as Thomas and what theater goers can expect from Venus and Fur. So one of my first questions is, looking at this title, Venus in Fur, what's this play all about? Gosh, well, it's a good question. Uh, I don't want to give away too much. Uh, Venus and Fur actually is a, uh, it's a 19th century novel. It's a German novel that inspires this play. It inspires this play. Uh, the premise of the, of the play is that this guy, Thomas, has written uh, an, uh, an adaptation a dramatic adaptation of this novel and he's looking for an actress to play the lead and uh, you're in uh, an audition studio and it's late and uh, he's a bit frustrated he can't find uh, the woman he's looking for and in comes um, Vonda who um, is pretty much a train wreck and uh, he's just trying to get rid of her and um, it uh, goes from there so it's almost like a play within a play correct okay very good <laughs> so, uh, looking at the way that they're describing this as sexy, smart, and electrifying, it is. what um, what can we expect out of that? Well, uh, I think the New York Times called it 90 minutes of good kinky fun. And uh, I would agree. Um, it's comedy. Um, it's suspenseful. Um, it is intelligent. Uh, it's kind of beautiful and dangerous. And, um, yeah, it's jam-packed. 90 minutes. It's two actors. Um, and uh, the actress playing Vonda, Lauren Nordvig, is not only an exceptional actress, she is extraordinarily beautiful, and her beauty is on full display in this, <laughs> in this production. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the images for this, uh, for this production around town, but um, she's smoking hot. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely sexy, smart, and electrifying, it, it, for sure. Indeed. So that leads me to the question, is, is this a play for all audiences? Well, I'm going to say no. Of course, it's not for all audiences. But um, it's not um, in bad taste. Um, it's just it, – it's adult in kind of the best way, not in, an, in necessarily an offensive way. It's, um, it's for adults. It's, it's sexy fun, definitely. Has the Hippodrome seen anything like this or is this kind of, uh, is this kind of new? Well, I mean, I, I guess it's – kind of different in that it's just two actors who are um, uh, going toe-to-toe for 90 minutes and uh, exploring um, concepts that uh, I don't, I've never seen explored on stage and done with a lot of humor and um, yeah, a lot of surprises, a lot of twists. It's a twisty play. Twisty. Yeah. What kind of concept can we expect to see? Well, I'm, uh, I think I think I will say one more time. It's good kinky fun. There we go. <laughs> so is this so the whole ninety minutes duration? It's just you and her. Yeah. And is this is it like a one set kind of a thing? Just takes course over one night. It, it does. It takes place in one night in a room, but um, with a little bit of um, design magic and a little bit of actor magic. 
the, the, the space transforms. It morphs. And um, that's part of the fun as well. How um, just some little uh, suggestive touches sort of really affect the imagination and, and sort of take you on a great ride. Uh, I like the play very much. Play, um, I think, uh, made the uh, was was considered the best play by ten major uh, national publications. It's a uh, well revered play. Um, it was uh, ran in New York last year. So um, I wanted to be a part of this. It's only the second production that's been done in the Southeast, and uh, I wanted to be a part of it. And then Lauren Nordvig uh, was one of my students a couple years ago. I teach at UF, actually. I teach acting at UF. And uh, she was one of my students a couple years ago, and I knew she was on board, and I was like, sign me up. Give me a spoon. I want some. <laughs> so that's it. That was Hippodrome actor Tim Altmeyer from the upcoming play Venus and Fur. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been broadcasted from Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM studios in Gainesville.